Isn't it another blessing that we've been given to gather together on this Sunday afternoon? The opportunity to open yet again the Word of God, but to engage in the other acts of worship. And we so look forward to the opportunity of singing and praying, association and all the things that come with having fellowship with God. It would perhaps be fair to say as we launch into the sermon this, this afternoon that you can see the title behind me on the wall. And we'll be devoting some time to 2 Samuel 14. And if you'd like to be turning to that location, you'll be prepared in just a few moments that we will meet at that location and consider some of the aspects of it. This opening slide is one that, in a very general way, I thought would at least be a reasonable beginning. Isn't it rather fascinating that God chose in His infinite wisdom to present the infinity of His truth in the life and times of people. You know, He could have written fables or stories or something else that would not be attached to reality, and that wouldn't detract anything from it. But yet He chose in the life and times of people, some of whom lived thousands of years ago at this point, and yet by their choices and their decisions and their life, you and I can see as we read the Bible what they did. We can learn from the things they did that were good. We can also learn from the things they did that were bad. We can not make the same mistakes they made. Tonight we come to one of the lesser known characters, I suspect, of the Old Testament. In fact, we do not know her name. She was a woman of Tekoa. And in fact, as we use the first portion of the lesson, we will merely revisit the scene in which she appears, and then we will draw at least three observations about that which she said and the circumstances in which she found herself. To do all of that, you'll notice on that slide that, may I be quick to say, some of the characters of the Bible, you and I, of course, are drawn to them so readily, people like Daniel and Joseph and even Paul. But there are others that you and I know so well to avoid much of what they did. People like Diotrephes and Jezebel and even Demas. But with that said, what about again this nameless woman of Tekoa? If you've already found that chapter, 2 Samuel 14, in fact, a little bit of this history will take us back to a chapter just previous to that. And hence, I will take just a moment and at least fill in some of those details, preparing us for what we read in chapter 14. The saga goes like this. You and I remember that David was a rather notable Old Testament character in that a great deal of emphasis was given to him those steps that led to his reign and his time as king of Israel. But of course, we also know much about his family. David had a lot of wives. Now that by itself is not terribly commendable. You see, he had deviated even himself from a fair amount of that beautiful portrait and picture we read in Genesis 2. But the fact is, he had a lot of wives and he had a lot of children. The oldest of his children was a boy named Amnon. We, in fact, learn and read a few things about him, and much of it isn't terribly commendable. In fact, tonight's lesson is not going to cast a bright spotlight on him at all. But we also appreciate that he had other children, David did, and the third oldest one was a boy named Absalom. Now, we quickly appreciate that among the children that David had, there was also at least one girl. Her name was Tamar, and she will play a rather pivotal role also in some of that which we read this evening. 
So at this point, appreciate that Tamar and Absalom were full brother and sister, and that they were half brother and sister to Amnon. So they had the same father, David, but a different mother. It is with that in mind, you may perhaps then already have recollected some of what happens in chapter 13. In fact, I've asked you to notice on that slide. Amnon was infatuated with his half-sister Tamar. The text says he, he was just sick over his infatuation with her. In fact, that particular characteristic of him had begun to bother Jonadab, one of his friends. And Jonadab, in fact, planted this seed of thought within him. Here's what you do. You're the king's son. There's no reason for you to look sad. There's no reason for you to have your desires unfulfilled. In fact, he very quickly said, here's what you do. You, in fact, pretend to be sick. And you get your father to send Tamar and prepare a meal in your, in your sight. And, and then as the opportunity presents itself, you avail yourself of her and fulfill this which is your desire. And so Amnon sent to David and asked his permission, Would you send Tamar? And you, in fact, would allow her to help me. I'm sick. and Allow her to prepare a meal for me. And sure enough, David dispatched Tamar, and she went to give assistance to her supposedly sick half-brother Amnon. And of course, as she prepared the meal and got everything ready, the time came when he wouldn't eat it. In fact, he made this demand, send all the men out. That left him alone with her, and things proceeded just as he wished that they would. He raped his half-sister. And as he availed himself of her, we remember that after the deed was done, he then had a hatred that welled up within himself toward her, and he sent her away from him. And of course, that the circumstances were such that that became known because she had to wear appropriate garments in light of this effect. David became aware of it, and so did Absalom, her full brother. As the chapter unfolds, we then read the following. We notice David was filled with great wrath toward what it was that took place. But you remember that David had little to say to his oldest son Amnon concerning this. But we notice that Absalom said nothing. The text is very specific in that he held his peace and said nothing with regard to what Amnon had done. But Absalom concocted a plan. It would take two full years for this plan to come to fruition. But he made plans to take the life of Amnon for doing this. The time came when the sheep shears were gathered at Baal Hatzor, and so it was that Absalom requested that his father send all the boys, all the king's sons, and they would come and arrive. And there was a plan in mind. Absalom's plan was this, when I give the signal, the servants take the life of Amnon. Sure enough, they did it. David's oldest son was killed. Now, you and I, as we reflect upon that again, it was a plan that had been concocted, but the aftermath of it may be developed into a scene that was not what was expected. You'll notice that on the next slide, some more of these details are themselves given. Absalom, after killing Amnon, fled. For three years he was to be in Geshur. For three years, he no longer would come to the palace. For three years, he would not be, if you please, in the king's presence. 
though he was, of course, a rather notable son of David, he was living in, a, in many ways, a very distant place at this time. As you can see on the slide, David mourned for his son Absalom. Now, the text will tell us that his mourning for Amnon had passed because Amnon was dead. There was no longer anything to be done about that. But his heart very much yearned for this distant son, Absalom. Now, as you can see on the slide, now is where chapter 14 enters, and here is where we encounter the woman of Tekoa. And the details proceed as follows. Joab was, of course, a very high-ranking official in David's cabinet, in David's military government, if in fact you please. And what you notice is that, beginning in verse number 2, Joab had a plan. He, in fact, concocted a rather elaborate scheme. He sent to Tekoa and found what was known as a wise woman, And he brought her to the castle, to the palace, and he told her what to say to David. In fact, I'll not read all of it, but I would at least like to read a couple of the verses beginning in verse number 2. Joab sent to Tekoa, and fetched thence a wise woman, and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner, and put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had long time mourned for the dead. This woman was such that, again, she is going to ultimately come to David, and she's going to tell a story. She is going to, in fact, share with him something which he's going to believe to be true. And in light of that belief, he will then make a decision and a determination based upon it. In fact, to look at some of them, here's the story she's going to tell. And may I be quick to say that the text says Joab gave her this story. So although she herself was said to be a wise woman, Joab planned it. He put it together. He made this story as believable as it's going to be and gave it to her to tell to David. The story she's going to tell him is this. I am a widow woman. My husband is dead. I have two boys, and one day they were out in the field working, and they got into a quarrel. They got into a fight, and one of them took the life of the other one. Sadly, my family, who now is living, they are very angry at my living son. They are angry that he took the life of his brother, and they want his life taken for the life he took. In other words, they want to completely extinguish all of my sons. And they want to take out from all of Israel the name of my husband. I will have no heirs left if my living boy is dead. She told this story to David. David, in fact, was very passionate about it. He said, I promise you I will let nothing happen to your living son despite the pleas and the desires of your living family members. Not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. After making that story to David, and after hearing his reply, she said, I've got one more thing, king, I'd like to say to you. David said, say say on, tell me what's on your mind. Beginning in verse number 13, this is what she said. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? 
For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. If I may paraphrase some of what the woman of Tekoa said to David, she said, King, you have spoken in such a masterful fashion concerning the preservation of my seed. But you know, the king is hypocritical in this. The king is guilty in this matter, for you have a child that is not home either. Did you note the way she ended that particular verse? The king doth not fetch home his banished. And now verse 14. For we must needs die, and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth He devise means that His banished be not expelled from Him. That isn't all that she shared, but that will in many ways end the major features of the text for the lesson tonight. Because you notice that ultimately David wasn't angry at her after in fact coming to the point where he directly asked, Did Joab give you this to say to me? And she admitted that he did. But ultimately, David, listening to the words that she shared, did go and fetch Absalom home. Now, admittedly, when he came home, he didn't immediately have access to the king. But after a while, he in fact did. It is, with all that said, I would like to share and ask you to notice first a map. And then some observations. You might want to notice on the map. I have, in fact, asked you to appreciate a few of the cities are highlighted. I might invite you to notice that Jerusalem is this uh, dot at this point, but you may notice that Tekoa was a little village situated really not that far from Jerusalem, around 10 miles or so. You may also be aware that Tekoa has another emphasis in the Word of God. Not only is it the hometown of this woman that we've encountered tonight, it was also the hometown of the prophet Amos. Amos 1 verse 1 will remind us Amos was in fact from this place. I've also asked you to highlight Baal Hatzor, wherein in fact was the place where all of of David's sons were gathered. And that's where... Amnon's life was taken by Absalom that night. With all of that said, what are some observations? And the first one is the explicit words that the woman shared with David on one occasion. Notice again verse number 14. We must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground. Could I remind each of us Though in our finer moments, we know it well. Life is an almost unbelievable blessing. The characteristic of the way God has infused it with such potential, such capacity and capability, you and I as we sojourn through this life upon this planet, oh, what possibilities exist. And the Word of God is often so quick to remind us of this truth. In fact, as you would quickly peruse just a few of them, Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. You and I, the finest of God's creation upon earth, made just a little bit lower than the angels. And how blessed they are. And yet you and I, in this flesh, we realize that God breathed the breath of life within us, Genesis 2, 7, 
And Job would say in Job 33, 4, that with that life breathed into us, oh, what capacity is ours. May we never take then the blessing of life for granted. This wise woman told to David, we are like water spilt on the ground. We pass through this life but once, and we will in fact pass through that channel of death. The wonder of life perhaps is echoed also with a thought that I've also asked you to appreciate as well. We must needs die. After the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we well recall the sentence of physical death that was brought upon the human family. And Paul would have much to say about this in Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. The first sin, of course, entered through the, the ways of Adam and Eve, but we realize that life came through the Christ. Final, beautiful, ultimate, eternal life came through Him. But in terms of life in this flesh, it is but temporary. Hebrews 9.27 so quickly reminds us that that well-appreciated appointment, every one of us will meet it. With the thought of that character in death and the understanding that goes with it, how sweet it is to hear her encourage David like this. We must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground. We can't relive our life. She likened it to water. Remember Joab's idea, apparently this was, to highlight the fact that we pass through this character of life, and as such, like water spilt on the ground, you can't gather it up again. You can't recover the seconds, the hours, the minutes, or the years. But we can, of course, make the best use of those things that we have at present. The sweetness of that thought then touched David when here was his son for this period of time in a distant place, and David yearned to have him home but had done nothing about it. Are there things in your life or mine that are not as we would wish them to be and we continue daily to let them remain in this state and not do anything about it? You see, like water spilt on the ground, these moments are passing and we're not going to have them back. Ought not we then to pursue the perfectness of those matters at the present moment? When she made that statement, I've asked you to notice that as she made it, it certainly touched David in a dramatic way, and he recognized the final idea of what she wanted to say. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide is the continuance of this thought when she also said, verse number 13, the king doth not fetch home again his banished. She had told a story where she had a son who the family, in essence, had desired to banish and take his life. The king literally had a son, and this son, Absalom, was far from home. This son, you see, had been, in essence, banished, and she, in essence, in a very tender way, said it's time to bring Absalom home. The king doth not bring home his banished. On the slide, I've invited you to notice a few thoughts about it. David needed to bring Absalom home. It was serving no purpose for him to be in Geshur. It was serving no purpose for him to be, in essence, in that foreign land. After all, the deed that he had accomplished had been done. Now, the fact is, the Old Testament law had made statements about what was to be done concerning murderers. And if it was the case that they were not going to carry some of those matters through, 
that at least there was serving no purpose for him to be to remain in Geshur. David understood in that statement of verse 13, the king doth not bring home his banished. May we make an application of that to ourselves. Here was the son, Absalom in a distant place. There was something dividing David and him, and nothing had been done about it. Could there be things in your life or mine, perhaps grudges, perhaps things we're holding against another, that are merely serving to cause a bit of inward pain for us, inward matters for the things that we could otherwise be. You see, when there are those who have asked for our forgiveness, and those who have asked that things be patched up between us and them, and yet we continue to hold these issues against them, then we are the ones at fault. Didn't Jesus Himself say in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 14, that if another asks of us forgiveness and has made that end toward the repentance necessary, then if we do not forgive them, then God will not forgive us. In other words, we have a bit of a responsibility in that regard ourselves. Jesus highlighted it with a bit of a powerful statement in light of what one of the apostles had said in Matthew 18. There, if one asks your forgiveness, how often, Peter said, should I forgive him? Till seven times? And the Lord said, oh no, till seventy times seven. A heart that's desirous of being forgiving. A heart that's desirous of an element of peacefulness between ourselves and another. Paul would highlight it in these words in Romans twelve eighteen: As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, we all would be quick to say that based on the first part of that verse, it's indeed true sometimes others do not want to be at peace with us. And they are the ones that harbor ill will and feelings. But as long as the power is within us, it surely is our wish to live at peace with all men. In regard to those matters, note the application of the wise woman's words to David. Is it not time to, in essence, bury this hatchet? to bring home the banished, and to live again with the opportunities of the daily blessings that are made available. It is no wonder in that regard that the pursuit of forgiveness is something encouraged upon us so powerfully in the pages of the New Testament. Isn't that, in fact, what's taught to us in Ephesians 4.32? Be kind and forgiving one to another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Maybe you and I need to think often about texts and messages like that one. There are those who won't repent, and there are those, at least at this point, who haven't, and we're not easily able to extend forgiveness to them under the banner of Luke 17.3. But to those who have and to those who have made those inroads, what a blessedness it is to put those feelings, those emotions behind it is with that said that perhaps another one. What else did the wise woman say? Could I invite you to notice the wording of verse number 14? We've already referred to the first part of that verse, but the latter part reads like this. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth He devise means that His banished be not expelled from Him. May we all appreciate the wisdom in what Joab gave the woman to say. She not only reasoned concerning the record of her family, the story in essence, touching that, 
She also made application to the king, but then she used an example of God himself. God devises means such that his banish be not expelled from him. In essence, she said, David, can't you do that with regard to your banished? But let's use this part of the lesson to talk for a moment about God and what He has done. That verse again reminds us. It says, God doesn't respect any person. Now that phrase is found more than once in the pages of the New Testament. Isn't that what was told to Cornelius by Peter in Acts chapter 10? Verses 34 and 35. Isn't that the same wording that was echoed to the church at Rome in Romans 2.11? God is no respecter of persons. He has exhibited His love in matchless wonder to one and all, and He allows each to make the choice of accepting it or not. But with that said, God has devised means. Don't you love the way that's stated? It is God who put forward a scheme, a plan, to bring His banished home. Of course, that refers to each and every one of us. For in the aspect of sin, we have separated ourselves from God. We banished ourselves from His purity, His holiness, and the perfectness of His being. Didn't Isaiah write it in these words in Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1? It says there, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shorter that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. You notice that your sins and mine, that is what divides us, separates us, moves us, if you will, aside from where God otherwise is. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, in the words of Habakkuk 1.13. And thus our sin has banished us from God. And yet, it is God that devised means, that devised a plan whereby we can come back to Him, that the banished can come home. Aren't we thankful for that? How miserable it would be if in that state of banishment we were forced to remain there. And yet this verse reminds us, Yet doth He, that word He refers to God, Devise means that his, that again refers to God, banished, be not expelled from him. I've asked you to notice on the slide then just a few quick observations, one of which proceeds like this. You'll notice God's the one that devised the means that when you and I were in sin, He acted on our behalf. Quite often, isn't it true? that we often tend to think, well, I'll do to others what they have done to me. But we understand in the finest of what God has already done, that's not the ideal way to be. Jesus Himself taught that rule in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, did He not? That we act toward others the way we want them to act toward us. In Romans 5, 8, it reads like this, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We notice God had devised means that His banished, namely us, be not expelled from Him, to bring those separated from Him home. The opportunity to be reconciled to God is that sweet and that majestic and that remarkable. 
in many ways, the woman of Tekoa was pointing down the stream of time a number of centuries until the reality of the Christ would make this a reality. No wonder in that connection, it might now be asked this. The question of deserving that is rather irrelevant. By the nature of our sin, none of us can claim we deserved Christ's blood. None of us can claim by our own merits that we were deserving of it. But God did it anyway. And so we now desire to live faithful to Him in light of what He's done for us. That last statement then, the means that He devised, of course it included the cross. And that plan that had been put in place from the foundation of the world, Paul will say in Ephesians 1 verse 3, from the foundation of the world the plan had been laid. And that plan came to fruition on a Thursday afternoon outside the city walls of Jerusalem. When our Savior was put to death, not for any sin He had committed, but for all of the sins you and I have. And yea, for those the human family has committed, and yet that was the means whereby God would bring His banished back to Him. One last thing on that slide. Centers around the long word reconciliation. We often see that word in the pages of the New Testament, and Paul gave us a powerful lecture concerning it in Romans chapters 5 and 6. And in that place, he spoke so sweetly about the benefits and blessings we enjoy as now reconciled to God. As we come near the close of this lesson, thinking a little bit about the woman of Tekoa, isn't it rather interesting that this person whose name we do not know shared a story that she did not come up with, and yet it not only impacted the life of David, but also spoke about events that would transpire as a blessing and benefit to all human people. Today, you and I don't have to be banished from God. The choice is ours to come home because the plan has been completed. The plan has been executed. This very evening, as we give thought to ourselves, am I currently banished from God? If that's so, it's because that's what I have chosen. Because God has chosen to bring me home, will I choose to follow? Will I choose then to follow those instructions? This evening, if you have never obeyed the sweet message of the gospel's invitation, why don't you come home? We sometimes sing a song, come home, come home. I might be quick to say that the thought of coming home is often such a sweet one. That's also true concerning the Word of God. There is going to be the greatest reunion of all some sweet day. Don't you want to be present? When one and all of the faithful shall gather around the table of the Lord, Revelation 19, 7, and enjoy the marvelous supper of the Lamb. Only those, you see, who are the righteous will be invited to that supper. Only those who are wearing the garments connected to the righteousness and the acts of the saints will be invited to that beautiful occasion. That means that here and now, if you and I are banished, we need to take care of this. Or better yet, we need to allow the Lord to take care of it by making the decision to act in favor of what He has determined. David acted in favor of what the wise woman said. He acted at once to bring Absalom home. It's time for you and I to come home too, if that is the need of our life.
But may I say, if you have obeyed the gospel and you've known at one time what great blessing and promise is within it, but you have chosen to wander from it, you've chosen to live far beneath your privileges. Remember, you were made a little lower than the angels, but while living in sin, we choose to live a lot lower than that. If that's the kind of choices you've been making of late, why not make a turnaround? The Bible again calls that repentance. Make a determination, a willful choice to come near to the Master. As you repent of those sins and confess them, He'll forgive them, and He'll reinstate you to a position of faithfulness where you can enjoy not being banished from the God of heaven. Tonight, may we allow the wise one of, of Tekoa to remind us about a few things such as the brevity of life, the nature of making wise choices daily, and being so thankful that God has brought His banished in such a way they can come home. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance to you in any way, let us know the way we can help while together we sting, stand and sing the chosen song.